But open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying this question of uh, why we're here. Why we're here personally, individually, why you're here, why I'm here, why are we in the earth? Uh, there's a little echo here, so if you could just, what you, whatever that magic you do to get rid of it, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we, we've, we're, why are we here? Why are we here as a church? What's this church here? This was church was founded 36 years ago by Sam and Donna Smith that God brought up here from Texas. And uh, we had a chance over the last uh, week or so to visit with some people that were part of the original formation of this through his sister, uh, Vicki Jameson, and how she traveled around. God really put New England on her heart, and she would come to Worcester and to this area and really bring the move of the Spirit and, and to an area that was very dry back in those days. And, um, and, and he was... He was her brother, and she came with her, and then God dealt with him about coming here and establishing his church. And in 1979, <clears throat> this church was officially established, not in this location. And, but, but why? Why would God bring a Texan up here to do something like this here? And why would God sustain us? And why would God could bless us? Because we are so blessed here in so many ways. Why would God do that? God always does things for a purpose. Well, what we've begun to do as we examine that is we looked at what Jesus told his disciples as to why he called them to begin with. And we've looked in Matthew, Mark chapter 16 where Jesus said, you are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every nation. And, and, and we've looked at what going means. We've looked at all means. We've looked at what the world means. We've looked a little bit of preaching. We're going to look more at that when we finish this part of it. But what it is we're supposed to preach is the gospel, and we've looked at that means good news. We've asked the question to ourselves. We really need to be honest about this. Is it really good news to us? I mean, our knee-jerk reaction, if you've been in church long enough, say, oh, yeah, that's good news. But the question, the real proof of that is, how good has it been in your life? And the real evidence of it is how, how motivated are you to tell other people about it? If you've seen a good movie, if you've gone to a good restaurant, or you've had some good experience, our, our, base, our natural human nature is to tell people about things that are good. You know, I saw this great movie. You need to go see this great restaurant. Nobody had to tell you to do that. We're motivated because we care about other people. We want to tell them something good that's happened to us. But then why do we have to be, have programs to evangelize? Why do we have to be felt made to feel guilty about evangelizing? Why isn't it so good that we can't be quiet about it? Because when Jesus did things for people back in the, in the gospel days, he had to tell them not to tell people. And they still did it anyway. When was the last time somebody told you not to evangelize and you went and did it anyway? Well, then maybe we need to go back and look in our heart and look at this and just ask the question. Maybe it's never been that good to you. Maybe you just got saved and, you know, you're just kind of going through the motions. You never saw this side of it. Maybe you got saved years ago and you just so filled with passion because of the good news, but we've, in the course of years, just kind of lost touch with all of that emotional experience and passion, and we've just kind of go through the motions as you can in a marriage. And so you need to stir it up again. You need to go back and, and, and remember why you got married. Wednesday night I posted a, one of our wedding pictures because last Wednesday was our 48th anniversary. And, and I posted, in order to do that, I pulled the picture out and I put it on my phone as a little thing that comes up. And I had to tell my wife I've got to take it off because it gets me excited every time I see that picture. <laughs> It brings back all, I mean, we've got passion now, but it brings back everything I felt then. Those emotions are still in there. In, in, in Revelation, one of the churches Paul writes to, uh, uh, John writes to, the Holy Spirit through him, 
and says, you know, you've done this well, you've done this well, you've done this great, you've done this right, but here's what I have against you. You've left your first love. You've lost the passion that you had for me. You're doing good things, but you're doing them because they're good things to do. You're not doing them because you're passionate for me anymore. And he tells them what to do. This is good advice for marriages. He says, go remember what you did at first and go back and do those again. Because what it does is it stirs up the emotion. All those emotions are still in there. So if when you got saved, you were on fire because Jesus was the greatest thing you've ever heard about. His love for you is so real. Go back and remember what you did in the beginning. Remember what things were like. And that's why we're going through this to kind of bring us back. And some of us never had this basic foundation. So we went and looked in Romans chapter 1. And Romans 1, because the book of Romans is really about the gospel. It's explaining the gospel, laying it out to, to church, churches in Rome that Paul had never met yet. They were not a church that he'd formed. The other, most of the other letters Paul writes to churches that he's formed, so most of them are basically correcting issues in the church, either answering a letter or letters that they wrote to him or addressing issues to them. But Romans is written as a statement of doctrine of, of what the gospel is. And he starts out in verse 16, which we've looked at. He says, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse, the next verse says, and here's why. Because in it, in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So we've been looking at this righteousness of God. What does it mean? And we've seen that there's two sides to it. There's... there's, there's the side that we're so used to hearing, which is that we've been made the righteousness of God. God's given to us His righteousness. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And then verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say that, that he who knew no sin, it's the great exchange, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's what we've been given, but we've lost touch with why we needed it. And we talked last week, or really the last couple of weeks, kind of the example that if you were signed up for the Air Force or you were in an airplane, you know, and they tell you in the beginning that the stewardess comes on, you know, she tells you how to put the oxygen mask on, you know, tells you where the emergency equipment is and how to use it in case there's an emergency. It's interesting to look around a plane because almost nobody's paying attention to her or him. They're just, you know, doing their doing their own thing because they're so used to hearing it that it doesn't mean anything to them until all of a sudden the pilot comes on and says the masks are dropping down, we've lost our pressure, we're dropping quickly, you know, we're about to go down. Now all of a sudden you want to call back, all of a sudden what did she say? And what the instruction she gives us and their training all of a sudden has a different level of meaning to us because it's the difference between life or death. And I suggest to you that this gospel is not the difference between physical life or death, it's the difference between spiritual life and death. It's the difference of where you're going to spend eternity. It is everything and therefore, it ought to be infinitely more precious than that parachute that that pilot has to hang on to as he comes out. Because that will just save his physical body. This will save your eternal soul and your eternal spirit. So that's what we're getting back to. So the, that's the second side of the righteousness of God. But we often don't truly value that because we've lost touch with or don't really understand the other side of the coin, the other side of that righteousness, which is what God, how the method by which God, or, and even Paul, through, God through Paul, reveals to them what this righteousness is about. 
So to do that, we went back and we looked at the very beginning when God created man in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we saw when God made it, everything was perfect. The man was perfect. God made him in perfect relationship with him. But God did not design man to handle the knowledge of good and evil. That's why he said, don't eat of that tree. You can enjoy everything else, but I did not make you to handle the knowledge of good and evil. For that, you've got to trust me. Just do what I say. I'll handle that responsibility. And of course, Satan comes in and what he tempts them to do is the very thing he did, which is to take their life into their own hands instead of letting God be their, be their source of everything. Instead of trusting God, they took things into their own hand. Then they began to evaluate for themselves what God had said to them. They began to evaluate for themselves whether God was telling them the truth or not. In other words, they were choosing to exercise a judgment of what was good and evil for themselves. And man's been doing that ever since. And that's the root of all sin. We've looked at that. The, 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 the things that people do wrong, lying, stealing, cheating, all that stuff, that's the fruit of sin. But the root of it is self. Self-reliance, self-centered, and most of all, self-willed. We sang in the beginning today, that, you know, especially at the end, surrendering to the Lord, surrendering to the Lord. And it stirs emotion and desire in our heart, but it's the most difficult thing to do. In fact, it's so difficult you can't do it yourself. It's so difficult, you can't do it yourself, because if you could do it yourself, you'd take credit for doing it yourself. It's humbling to realize I can't even surrender myself. I'm so much in control of myself, I can't let go. It takes the Holy Spirit's working in me by my permission to, to, to do that work in me. And so we've looked at that. And that helps us to understand because then God's method of getting this across to people, it said in, 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 uh, uh, in Romans chapter 5 that, that, that when Adam sinned, because Adam, Adam knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived, but Adam knew what he was doing. That, that, that from Adam's time until Moses, sin was in the world. Man was sinning. They were being selfish. And as a result, they were dying because God said, in the day you, in the day you violate my law, in dying you will die. And so they were dying, but they didn't know why because sin was not attributed to them. They were, not, they were never given a standard of why. So what God does in Moses, because it says in Romans 5, it says, man did not sin after the example of Adam. Adam broke a known commandment. He knew what he was doing, he knew what God required, and he chose as an act of his will to disobey God's commandment. And so what Romans teaches us in Romans 5 is that unless God tells us what he requires, we don't know what law we're breaking, but the consequences of it are still there. If you don't know it's wrong to stick your finger in a light socket, and you do it, you're still going to get electrocuted, whether you knew it would happen or not. And that's what Romans 5 is talking about. And so then what we begin to look at is, in Moses, God calls the children of Israel to the base of a mountain and says, I'm going to bring you up on this mountain, and I'm going to tell you what I require. And we went through, it's in Exodus chapter 20, it's the Ten Commandments. We went through each of those uh, over the last two weeks. And what God was doing there is He was giving them what He'd given Adam in the beginning. This is my requirement. This is what I require. If you're going to be righteous... As I am righteous, this is what you have to do. Not every once in a while, not on your best day, but you've got to keep them all 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for your entire life, the way I do. And we began to look last week, 
that, that over in examples of that in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up there. We've gone through the, the 10, and now what we're going to do, it's time for me to sit down. I can tell she's telling me to sit down. <laughs> I'll bring it out here so I can't, no. <laughs> I can't see you. I've got to stand up to read it. Then I'll sit down. She's watching out for me, and I appreciate that. I do. Okay, we're going to start now in, uh, we looked last week at God's standards in Matthew 5 about murder. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus is taking the Ten Commandments or parts of them and He's bringing them down to the level where we live. He's taking them from our outward activity to the inward attitudes of our heart. Because God is not just righteous in His deeds, He's righteous in His nature. And by, you know, the basic principle, one of the basic principles of the Bible, Jesus said you can tell them by their fruits, you can tell what's going on the inside by the outside. And so you can't change the fruit, you have to change the root. If you change the root, you'll change the fruit. That's clever, isn't it? Okay. Okay. So we looked at uh, at murder. We saw in verse 21 through 26 that murder isn't just physically killing somebody. It can be angry against somebody without a cause or it can be angry at somebody and you hold on to it when you don't need to hold on to it. In fact, it's so important. Jesus says if you're angry at somebody, if you know your brother has something against you and you come to the altar to worship God and you don't deal with that, God's not going to receive your worship. You need to go get that right with your brother and then come and worship God. And so the attitude of our heart towards each other... See, the, Jesus reduces all these commandments down to this at one point. He says, this, they're all summed up in this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. That's great. Ah, and your neighbor as yourself... It's not just our love for God, it's our love for one another. In fact, one of the things the Bible teaches is the evidence of your love for God is the love you have for one another. In 1 John, he says, you cannot love God and not love your brother. How can I say I love God and I hate my brother that God made and he loves? So you can't do that. You can think you're doing it, but you're not. The real measure of your love for God is the love that you have for the people that he loves even though they may not be lovable, but guess what? You're not either. So we looked at murder last week is defined, is is the attitude of your heart towards people. It's holding on to grudges. And then this was a popular one. We looked at adultery. Jesus talks about adultery. It's not just physically what you do. It's lusting after someone in your heart. And we saw as the root of all these, the root of all these is, again, self The root of adultery is selfishness. I'm not getting what I need from my spouse. We talked about adultery as a covenant. And the reason that that God's view He has towards adultery is so severe is because it's the breaking of a covenant before God. A covenant is when two become one. And to break that covenant is to separate it apart. And just as physical adultery is meeting your physical needs from somebody you're not in covenant with, therefore violating the covenant, spiritual adultery is defined as the same thing. It's meeting your spiritual needs from anything other than God because you're breaking your covenant, your spiritual covenant with God. And in Malachi he says, "I I hate these things because they're a breaking of a covenant. So Jesus is bringing the standard of what adultery is from the outward act to the inward attitude of the heart. And we talked about last week, you know, be careful because you can't control thoughts that come into your mind any more than you can control, you know, birds flying over your head. But what you can control is what you do with those thoughts. 
when you hold on to a thought, or you can't help, you know, especially in this day and age, you may see some handsome thing without a shirt on, you know, you know, 25 years younger than you are, you know, and he's walking around flexing it, or you may see some beautiful girl on a beach and they don't have very hardly much of anything on, you know, what do you do? Well, sometimes you just, you know, you can't help seeing things, but it, what do you do then? It's the, what does your will do with that? Do you continue to dwell on that and draw pleasure from that? That's what Jesus is talking about. All right, well, we're going to move on from that today. Oh, yeah, one more. He talked about lying. Well, I don't lie. But Jesus, we talked, the, the commandment was to not take the name of the Lord, not, not, to, not to bear false witness with one another. And we talked about what truth is. Truth, is, truth, does, not have, truth does not have gradients. When we were looking at the colors to put on the stage, we looked at one of the op- options was to, to paint this front of the stage in gradients of gray. And, and Monique Johnson had prepared for us this wonderful chart that shows us the different gradients. And, and I looked at that, and, 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 but, we, but, but we try to do that with truth. Well, you know, it's a white lie, or it's just a white lie, or it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's mostly true, and that's a lie. Because something's either true or it's not. It's like being almost pregnant. No, you either are or you're not. It's either truth, and if it's not truth, it's a lie. That's how God sees it. God doesn't see, well, they had good intentions, they meant well, they were trying to protect somebody, ah, blah, 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 blah. Now, the Bible says to tell the truth in love. But truth is truth or it's not truth. And so he said, let your words be yes or no. You shouldn't need to make an oath to tell somebody you're really telling them the truth this time. Because that means there are other times, uh, this is one of the pet peeves I have here in the office, and some of you, some of them know this. Well, pastor, to tell you the truth, uh, that almost implies to me, if you've got to tell me you're telling the truth, what about the times you don't say that? And I understand it's a habit, but it's really not a good habit. Because you hear your own words. You hear your own words. Well, we're going to move on from that. All right. We're going to pick up. There are other examples here. And what Jesus is doing here is He's telling you what God's righteousness is. He's telling you what God is like, how He conducts Himself. And how He, if He walked on this earth... Oh, I think He did walk on this earth, didn't He? How He acted. Because Jesus is the only man that's ever walked on this earth that actually kept these commandments this way all the time. He's the only one that ever earned His righteousness. So what we're going to learn is the righteousness He freely gave to you and me is a righteousness He didn't inherit. He earned it. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 5, He had to learn obedience through the things He went through. If somebody had to learn obedience, that means it didn't just, wasn't just a gift given to them. Why did he have to learn it? Because now God was wearing flesh. And he could be tempted with the things you and I could be tempted with that God in heaven can't be tempted with. And so he had to put on flesh so he would be tempted. Hebrews 4 says, in all ways, yes, as we are, yet without sin, so that he could understand our weaknesses. So we have a high priest we can come to who is not unsympathetic, who can be sympathetic with your struggles because he had to overcome things in his flesh too. The difference is he always did it. 
every time. And aren't you glad he did? So he's showing us God's standard if we're going to stand before God on our own. All right, let's move on here. Let's look at verse 16. Gives you a little bit of background here. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're learning this on Wednesday night. We're learning on Wednesday night that we're to be, we're, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the purpose of that is so because the word transform means to take what God's put on the inside of you and bring it to the outside so other people can see it. If it's only on the inside, if you're a closet Christian and those, the nature of God is only on the inside and you don't ever act like Him, it doesn't, you're, you're no witness to Him. And so there's a process of bringing that to the outside. So this is saying the same thing. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not so that they can see your good works and glorify how wonderful you are for being such a good person. I remember when I left the law firm, this last law firm I left, you know, I had, they threw a little dinner for me and, and I had great favor there. And, and I remember saying, oh, you're such a wonderful person. And I walked out of saying, I failed. Now I understand it was good to have a good testimony. But if all they saw was me, if all they saw was the good works and they didn't glorify my Father in heaven, then I didn't truly fulfill what I was there to do. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. People won't give glory to Him unless they can see Him in you, and the only way they can see Him in you is if it's by the fruit that's coming out of you. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now verse 17, He says, And do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For assuredly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness, we're talking about the righteousness of God, we're talking about that righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds or goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's got Pharisees and scribes in front of him, religious leaders, who are holding themselves up as the example, as the perfect fulfillment of the law by their outward things. They're very careful how they wash their cups. They're very careful how they do everything to the, exactly to the jot and the tittle. They do everything outwardly, but inwardly in their heart, in their attitude, he said, you are like dead man's bones on the inside. He went even further than that. He said, you are like a whitewashed sepulcher. Whitewashing is something like a white covering that's so water-based that when it rains it washes off. It's a false covering. He says, and that false white covering is covering up an empty tomb inside. So he's talking about their inner man and he says, unless our righteousness exceeds that, we will not even enter the kingdom of God. And then he begins to go through the heart examples that we've started to talk to. So now we're going to pick up in verse, verse 38. There's some difficult things he says in here. We're going to begin to look at them. We may not get through all of them today. You have heard that it was said, this is under the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, he's now going to raise the barrier, the, the bar. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. And whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now stop there a second. That's a hard, does, does he really mean that? 
What does that really mean? Well, it helps to understand what the word resist means. The word resist comes from a Greek word, antihistame, from which we get antihistamines or antihistamines. And the word means, actually in Greek, it means to oppose or be hostile towards. And what he's talking about here is what was called in the Old Testament is the law of retaliation. Somebody does something to me, I'm going to do something back to them. Somebody cuts me off on the way to church, I'm going to bless them. (laughs) Somebody does wrong to me, we call it justice. Somebody does something to me, I'm going to do it right back to them. And the ultimate insult is to somebody slap you in the face. Push you is one thing, hit you in the arm, punch you in the stomach, but to slap you in the face is, is a very insulting thing. In fact, in the medieval days when they were going to trigger a duel, that's what they would do. They would slap the other person in the face. It's a high insult. And he's using this as an example because when you get insulted, what's your first reaction? To slap them back, to get even. Oh, we might be more sophisticated and more subtle about that. We may not hit them right back, but we're going to begin to plan some way to get back at them. We'll even pray for them. God, you know what they did to me? Get them! Oh, we wouldn't put it that way. We would say, Lord, expose their sin. Lord, they're a danger to somebody. Expose this for them. But really what's under heart is what Jesus is talking about, is my motive to get back. Now Jesus, of course, actually lived that out because they spit in His face, they tugged at His beard, they drove a crown of thorns down on His head, they insulted Him, and He never answered back. This is so hard that when the Apostle Paul was being tried and they were pushing him around, he spoke back at the man that spoke to him until he found out he was the high priest. So Paul lost it for a moment. Very high standard. Does this mean that if somebody comes and you're not supposed to have locks on your doors, you're supposed to go to bed on the summer night and leave your doors open because if some thief wants to come in, we're supposed to just let them take whatever they want? No, that's not what this is talking about. Remember what the root of sin is. The root of sin is self, selfishness, self-reliance, self-willed, and it's what is at the heart of striking back is somebody's done something to me, I need to satisfy that need in me to make sure there's retribution for what they did to me. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. God, aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Let's go over to verse um, 43 now. Let's go down to verse... uh, Verse 40 says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, what he's talking about is, I've got to defend myself. Somebody did something, I've got to sue them, boy, I'm going to sit. Is it ever wrong to go to court? No. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it is, Paul deals with this issue. He says, wait a minute, some of you are taking each other to court. He says, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be so. And not because it was wrong to do it. What's wrong is he said, you can't resolve your conflicts between you. He says, do you understand in the next life, you know, you're going to be ruling over angels and you can't handle the dispute among yourselves so much you've got to take your Christian dispute where you're 
commanded to love one another and prefer one another. You're commanded to take your Christian pursuit and you're going to take it before pagans to decide? You've, you've lost it. You've lost your testimony when you do that. I had to deal with this when I took over because we were involved in a dispute with another Christian organization over the use of the term that we had ascribed to copyright for the radio station we had here, which was Shine Radio. And we went to register that trademark and register that name, and we had an objection filed by a Christian organization. I said, wait a minute, what's wrong with this? And they were in another part of the country. And so we, you know, at the time, I, I was not in charge. We hired a lawyer, and we got involved with all that, and I got all my legal juices stirred up, and I was going to meetings and, you know, all this stuff stirred up. And then when I took over, I pulled the senior partner. I said, how much is it going to cost us? It's going to cost $100,000 to go through and push this all the way through to the end. I said, well, aside from that, this is wrong. So I called up the president of that Christian organization, and I said, look, I'm going to do what the Bible says. The Bible says we ought to be able to work this out between us. I said, and if you and I can't work this out, I'm not going to take you to court. If I have to, I'll sow that name to you. I'll give it to you. But I think we can work it out. And we worked out a, a, a plan by which we could use that for a period of time and release it to them. And God's honored that with us. But the point is, it was not a matter of, you know, it was a matter of not striking back, not standing up. Well, we have a right to this because we got into this issue with the lawyers. Well, we did it first, and then they say they did it first. And wait a minute. We ought to, we're, we're, we're members of the same body. We have the same goal in mind we ought to be able to work this out. And this is what he's talking about here. Okay. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. He who compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, there's an interesting background to that. I found in studying this. In the Roman Empire, which is what they were part of, there was a law that says if the government officials are, are need to transport something, or they need, to, uh, uh, um, they need a courier because they didn't get on trains or planes. They used horses or they used chariots. Uh, or, uh, they had a right, if they were Roman, doing Roman business, they had a right to come to you and take your horse or take your carriage or take whatever you had and just, just take it from you and use it for their purposes. So he's talking about here somebody that comes and takes something from you that they may have a right to that you want to defend yourself against. And he's basically, again, the whole root of all of these things is when we're defending ourselves about ourselves. I've found in decisions I've had to make as a senior pastor, such as the one I just talked to you about, if I will go back to what God's heart is about it, because the devil loves to push us. Somebody's saying this about you, pastor. Somebody's saying this about faith Christian. Do you know what they put on Facebook about? I don't go on Facebook for that reason. We, the church is on it because we can put information out there. But I don't want to see what people are saying. Because I don't want to have to deal with this within myself one way or the other. Oh, hey, that's the greatest church, the greatest pastor. I don't want to deal with that either. The only one I want to deal with what they have to say about me is God. Because I love you and I appreciate some of you have been so kind in some things you've said. Don't stop saying them. I appreciate hearing them. But I have to answer them in my head. Because ultimately, the only one who thinks they think of you or what they think of me that matters is Him. And I want to hear those words. It's, the, it's what motivates me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's what we all want, I believe. So that's what he's talking about here. Okay. 
So when he talks about verse, one, verse 41, about compelling you to go uh, that extra mile. Verse 42, give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Oh, this gets tougher. Bless those who curse you. Okay, that's with my mouth. The next one's even harder. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who... Oh, I can hardly get the words out. Spitefully use you and persecute you. Let's look at that a minute. I say to you, love your enemies. Okay, that's easy to do sitting in a nice blue chair on an air-conditioned church on Sunday morning with good people around us that we love and love us. But what's it like at work? What's it like? Your enemy is somebody that... It isn't just somebody doesn't like you. An enemy is trying to destroy you. An enemy has made you a target. They're trying to overcome you, move you out of the position you're in at work. They're trying to destroy your witness, whatever it is. They've targeted you, and they're trying to overcome you somehow. And he said, I say, love your enemies. And that's not just the emotion. Bless those who curse you. People that just say terrible things about you. What is our natural instinct? Find something to say back about them. Yeah? So's your old man. You know, like children do. You know, get into a word battle with somebody, yeah? My father can lick your father. All that kind of thing. And you know what? As Christians, we do that. We get out there thinking somehow we're, our job is to defend God. I've looked. I haven't found that in the Bible. That's the trouble Eve got in. The same trap. The same bait that Satan used against Eve and she bit for it, which was to defend God. God's trying to keep something from you. And she went to defend Him. And God never commanded them, never told them to defend Him. He's never told us to. But we want to strike back. We're in a time now when we can feel that the church does not have the same standing it once had in the world and certainly in this nation. There was a time when church was looked up to and respected whether people believed in it or not. At least we were respected. We're not respected now. We will most likely gradually be included in with the hate crimes just because of the beliefs of the Bible. That's, I believe, where it's headed. So we may well be persecuted for simply saying what the Bible says, not our own opinion, saying what the Bible says. What are we going to do with that? And the, the, the evidence that I see in the church world in the United States doesn't give me a lot of confidence because we try to strike back somehow. That's, that's, what the, that's exactly what the devil wants us to do. How does that make us look any different than the world? But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good. That requires action. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And he doesn't mean pray, God, get them. <laughs> to spitefully use you means somebody has purposefully, intentionally chosen you. to. You know, when somebody's using you, that's a degrading thing. It's one thing if somebody receives blessings from you or receives something that you decide to do for them. But to use you means they, they got something that they wanted by taking advantage of you. They demeaned you. 
You became a tool, not a person, but you became a tool to them. It's demeaning, and therefore it stirs up our ego inside. They thought less of me. They talked down to me. To, notice, to me. It's all rooted in me. Who spitefully, which means they didn't just use you, they enjoyed it. They got pleasure out of it. And what does Jesus say we're to do? We're to pray for those who use you, spitefully use you, and who persecute you. But look at the next verse. This is why. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends the, sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Remember what we're learning is that the righteousness of God is simply God telling you what He's like. This is what I do. This is my nature, my character. And if you're going to be righteous, you've got to be just exactly like me. And what does God do? What does God do to those that are His enemies? What does God do to those that spitefully use Him? Every one of us has used Him at some point. In fact, don't turn there, but over in... Uh, well, let's go, let's go over to uh, Romans 12 quickly. We'll come back here. Romans 12. I'm sorry, Romans 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would someone die, yet for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Well, I know as I was a sinner and Christ died for me. Much more than now, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath from Him. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. See, we saw that we were sinners. And this is the whole point of all of these things we've been looking at. We saw, yeah, I know I was a sinner, and God loved me enough He sent His Son to pay for my sins that I might now be a child of God. But when I was a sinner, the Bible says I was his enemy. And that's kind of hard for us to grasp because we can't see God. How can I mount an offensive against God? How can I mount an army to go against God? But the Bible says that when I was in rebellion against him, that's why we spent the time looking in, cha in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 of Genesis and saw that it's rebellion. And we saw what rebellion is. And I kept emphasizing this word rebellion, which I don't like to hear and you don't like to hear. But that's what the Bible says so we could understand what it means when the Bible says we were his enemies. We were opposed to His kingdom. That's why I took you through Genesis. Because when, we became, when, we, when you take things into your own hands, you are establishing your own kingdom. And in that kingdom, I'm God in my kingdom. And therefore, if I've got my own kingdom, and God has His kingdom, and they're contrary to each other, then I'm His enemy. What did God do with that? What did God do with all His enemies? He reconciled us to Him. He restored that relationship to Him through the death of His own Son so that we shall be saved. How did God treat His enemies? He loved Him enough to give His own Son's life that He might save His enemies. Not just save us from hell, 
not just save us from an eternity of suffering in hell, but He might also give us His righteousness that He earned, that we didn't earn, that He might give His righteousness to His enemies for the very reason that they are His enemies. Not just give them His righteousness, but make them righteous, us righteous, so we would be qualified to be His children. He put us in the same place with His one Son that never sinned. His enemies He did that to. So when God calls upon us, when Christ calls upon us to be good to our enemies, to love our enemies, He's telling us to do nothing other than what He's done with us and He does with all of His enemies. He's telling us to be like Him. To be like Him. Romans 12. Now go to Romans 12. Verse 18. If at all possible, as much as depends on you, because sometimes it can't happen, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Do not avenge who? Yourselves. Do not avenge who? The only time Jesus spoke up in the trial before Pilate was when Pilate said something about his father. He says, man, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And Jesus said, you have no power that was not given to you by my Father who is in heaven. He never defended himself, but he defended his Father. He honored his Father before Pilate. Do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Moses, when his brother and sister got uppity, and they started thinking about, you know, this Ethiopian woman that he'd married, and then they began talking to each other. Be careful who you're talking to and what you're talking about, because when you begin to talk about leaders, Romans 14 says, don't judge another man's servant because God's able to make them stand. And that's what they started. It was their own brother because said families were the worst part of this can happen. Then they started saying, you know what? Wait a minute. Who does he think he is? God speaks to us. We're prophets. God speaks to us, which means he must have. God speaks to us. Why is he so special? When Moses heard that, he fell on his face to pray for them. He didn't defend himself and say, wait a minute, God chose me over you. I'm the one that's got the glory on me. I'm the one that's been on the top of the mountain. He didn't say anything about himself. He fell on his face for fear for them. And who showed up on his behalf? God showed up in a cloud. And God started asking questions. Vengeance is mine. When you really understand that, you will pray for those that have used you because you'll understand that if you, as long as you're in the right God will defend you and He will at some point take care of you vengeance is mine says the Lord it's not yours therefore if your enemy's hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him drink for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head look at verse 21 do not overcome evil do not be overcome by evil which is what will happen if you defend yourself 
If you defend yourself, if you strike back, if you retaliate, if you take things into your own hands, you will be overcome by their evil. Because you're, my mother used to say, don't go down to their levels, what she used to say. And that's basically what God's saying. If you retaliate, remember, it's nothing wrong with protecting your family. There's nothing wrong with protecting, you know, but, but it's when it's, you know what it's talking about. It's getting back for something somebody's done to you. When you do that, you literally open the door to whatever they're doing to you. You're participating in it. And so Paul writes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's around verse 7, says, love never fails. It may not win in the beginning, it may not win in the middle, but love, God's love for people never fails. I'll end with this story. We'll pick up here next week. Most of you have heard, know, have ever seen the movie The Cross and the Switchblade. Some of you may not have, but it's a story of a man named David Wilkerson who God led. He's in a prosperous community. He led into the streets of New York to witness to some gangs. And there was a gang leader named Nicky Cruz, and he kept witnessing to him, and I've forgotten the story. It's been so long since I've seen it or read it. But basically the story was he kept witnessing to him, and Nicky Cruz kept getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And at one point it reaches this culmination where there's a confrontation and Nicky Cruz has his knife out. He says, man, don't you understand? I'm going to cut you. If you keep saying that to me, he's getting angry. Why? Because the love of God, he couldn't deal with the love of God. He couldn't deal with that. He could deal with other gangs attacking him. He knew what to do with that. He could deal with rebellion in his gang. He knew how to deal with that. He knew how to deal and protect himself. But he couldn't deal with somebody that would love him no matter what. He couldn't deal with that. He didn't know how to overcome that. He didn't know how to answer that. So he got angry, which is why some of your friends you've been talking to begin to strike back at you. Why? That's a sign it's working. It's when they ignore you that nothing's happening. And if I remember correctly what Nikki Cruz said, I'm going to cut you into a thousand pieces. And David Wilkerson looked at him and says, go ahead. And if you do, every one of those pieces is going to still love you. And that broke him. It broke him. It broke him. When somebody loved him so much that they would not defend themselves, they would die. It broke him. And that's the good news. Somebody loved you and me enough. Somebody loved their enemy enough who was rebellious, didn't, you know, use their name in vain, wouldn't, rebel, wouldn't listen, would do what we wanted to do, establishing our own kingdom. Somebody loved you and me enough that they were willing to be beaten mercilessly, skin stripped, thorns forced down on their head, and to die the most hideous death on a cross. Somebody loved you enough to put their son, who never did anything wrong, always obey them, faithful in that place, Somebody loved you and me that much. That's the gospel. That's what people can't answer. That's what breaks through hard hearts. That's what breaks through pride. That's what breaks through fear. That's what, breaks, that's what the devil has no answer for. Because the only answer the devil has is what he did, which is to strike back, to, provo- to promote himself. The devil has no answer for this kind of love. No defense to it. And that's 
the good news. And the question is, if that's what God's loved us with, and that's what God requires of us, how can we walk in that? How can we ever walk in that if that standard is so high? The good news is this. God knows you and I can't. So he came to you, paid for our sins, took your old nature that was selfish and self-centered, took that old heart out of you and me, and put in us a brand new heart that was born out of him. So we became born again on the inside, and it also means born from above. So God put in us his nature. Peter calls it the divine nature that by that we now learn to live on the outside the nature that's been put on the inside. And just to make sure we could do it, God also took His Spirit and poured His Spirit out in us to empower us and enable us to do this. Which is why the, oh wow, why the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we be strengthened by His Holy Spirit in our inner man with might so that Christ might be able to live his life through us, being rooted and grounded in this kind of love, we might come to know, together with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God. Why? So we can be filled up with all of his fullness, which is this kind of love. Then we will, our good works will go forth, will shine forth in such a way that it will glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We stand in awe of you and of your love for us and of your grace and of your goodness. And Father, as we take this law and we measure ourselves against it, we've made excuses so many times for falling short, and there is no excuse for falling short. The only answer is your grace, not an excuse. And so, Father, we ask you to make this good news such a reality down deep inside of us that we wake up thinking about it, we go to bed thinking about it, we begin to look at everything in the world and our world around us in terms of this good news. Fill us with your Spirit that we may go forth from here in the power and demonstration of the grace and the love of God that's given to us through your Holy Spirit. Amen.